Let's try that again. Let's get this show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. government. The government is not us. This is the files. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. Episode number 96. Hey, Ace. Ace in the chat says, hey. Um, we are recording this on the 13th of uh, April. Broadcasting live on Alternative Internet Radio. A-I-R-A-D.io slash live. From Mega City 3. If you hear any buzzing, clicking, and whirring in the background, that's because my 3D printer goes burr, and, uh, I have a small apartment. So you may or may not be able to hear these sounds. Just know that that's the sound of freedom. We'll talk about that here in a minute. We also have, uh, some interesting news stories about, uh, um, I don't want to only talk about COVID, but I'll tell you what, it is so hard. To do a news show, a politics show in these times because everything is COVID related. There's so little that's coming out, even about the elections and things of that nature. That there's there's so little happening in the actual news cycle because of this stupid fucking plague. So it's it's a real pain in the ass to try and do a show uh, in in these times. To be honest with you, that's that's part of the reason I didn't get last week's show done. I, I is mostly because I have a massive assignment coming up in in my writing legal writing class. But it's it's also because it's just really hard to do a new show right now. Um, it's hard to put together enough stories on enough topics to actually get something out. Uh, it's, it's all, it's all COVID-19 based and everyone's keeping up with that anyway. I, I like to try and do a show that adds things to the conversation or brings stories that you may not have heard and everyone's heard all the stories. It's, it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult, especially when you have other things going on. So it's a pain, but we can, uh, we can get started over here with, uh, with some, Good news, actually, from the FIRE.org, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Florida State dumps unconstitutional speech restrictions and earns highest free speech rating from FIRE. This is published on the 9th of April. Uh, Florida State University revised its policies on free expression to earn the top free speech rating from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, the top green light rating is held by only two other institutions in Florida and just 54 nationwide. Florida State earned FIRE's green light rating after reversing five policies, including a directive on bias response and an electronic mail policy barring subjectively, quote, irrelevant or, quote, inappropriate emails 
Uh, the University of Florida and the University of North Florida previously earned the green light rating. The University of South Florida and the University of Central Florida each earned fire's yellow light rating, which denotes policies that, by virtue of their vague wording, could too easily be used to restrict unprotected uh, uh, expression. The University of Miami earns fire's worst red light rating, meaning that university maintains policies that clearly and substantially restrict protected speech. On Florida State's campus in April 2019, Governor Ron DeSantis called on the state's public colleges and universities to adopt a popular resolution protecting student free speech, commonly known as the Chicago Statement. Florida State is among 12, uh, 12 schools nationally that both earn a green light rating and have adopted a version of the Chicago Statement. Public universities like Florida State are largely bound by the First Amendment to protect student free speech rights, while private institutions are bound by promises of free speech found in their official policies. Uh, and then they have a link to some other uh, uh, resources that you can look at there. Um, I'm, this is very good news. Um, the Chicago Statement's done a lot for... Um, the Chicago Statement has done a lot for free expression on campus, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that more and more universities are lining up to actually comply with it. But uh, this is, you know, a, a news and politics show. And for every piece of good news, there's a piece of bad news. This is interesting. Uh, 25 state attorney generals uh, wrote a letter to the U.S. Department of Justice and Secretary uh, Mike Pompeo demanding that 3D printed gun files be removed from the Internet. Um, one of those 25 attorney general uh, uh, went onto Twitter and posted the full letter which I'm going to look at here. Now, I also want to point out in this tweet, uh, which I will link to uh, in the show notes, the, the tweet also reads, they need to follow the law and stop defense distributed from putting these files online. These guns pose an extreme risk. I'm not sure if they're aware the defense distributed isn't where a lot of this is coming from now. It's actually deterrence dispensed. Um, the, uh, the, the decentralized sort of group of developers that fly under the deterrence dispensed flag that are uh, doing most of the innovation in this area. I just, <laughs> I find it very funny. Uh, but let's go to this letter. I'm going to skip uh, some, like the beginning of it and stuff, but it's, uh, you know, Dear Secretary Pompeo and Attorney General Barr, on behalf of the states of List of States, uh, we write to inform you of an urgent matter that has come to our attention regarding 3D printed firearms. It appears that Defense Distributed, a company run by a, quote, crypto anarchist dedicated to, quote, evading and dis, uh, disintermediating federal and state gun safety laws, has recently resumed making computer files for the production of 3D printed firearms available on its website. On behalf of the citizens of our states and in the interest of preserving public safety and security throughout the United States, we strongly urge the federal governments to act swiftly using both its civil and criminal enforcement power to ensure Defense Distributed's compliance with federal law. The available files include STL and other functional 3D printing files for the, quote, Liberator pistol and number of other weapons. These are about to print a Glock 17. <laughs> I don't know why people are still worried about the Liberator. Um, these are represented to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, represented to be working firearms that can be made with materials such as plastic that is not detectable by standard metal detectors. They fire metal ammunition and they have metal parts. This is ridiculous. Uh, using the computer files in an inexpensive and commercially available 3D printer. These files are on the United States munitions list, Imposing posting them on the internet without federal authorization appears to violate federal export law. <laughs> this is going to be how they come after it, and I find it hilarious. Further, those files enable the automatic manufacture of functional plastic weapons in violation of the Federal Undetectable Firearms Act. They're not undetectable, you dumb cunt. 
If the federal if the federal government fails to act, these files will be distributed widely with potentially grave consequences for our national and domestic security. Too late. The efficacy of our country's existing metal detectors, a ubiquitous security device in our airports, schools, arenas, and public venues, will be compromised if you do not act. Um, sorry, we don't have plastic ammunition yet. As both the state and commerce departments have recognized, effectively controlling the dissemination of these 3D printed firearm files via the internet is, quote, in the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States, quote, in the absence of controls on the export, re-export, or in-country transfer of such technology and software, such items could be easily used in the proliferation of conventional weapons, the acquisition of destabilizing numbers of such weapons, or for acts of terrorism. Anyone who downloads and uses defense-distributed computer files, even if that person is ineligible to possess a firearm due to their age, criminal history, or other disqualifying factor, would be able to automatically manufacture functional weapons that cannot be detected by a standard metal detector and, furthermore, are untraceable because they lack serial numbers. The proliferation of undetectable weapons will seriously compromise security and public safety in locations such as airports, schools, prisons, sporting events, uh, music venues, and government buildings. Easy access to untraceable weapons will also impede law enforcement's ability to investigate and respond to crimes committed with these uniquely dangerous weapons. They're not uniquely dangerous. Uh, stateless Cook in the chat. Give Ivan time for plastic ammo, though. Yeah, man. He's been tweeting about it a little bit. Um, I went through and, I went and looked through that, that thread. I had seen the post um, with the picture, but I hadn't actually seen the full thread. Uh, we talked about it on Discord a little bit. I, uh, I went and looked at the actual thread, and he's being very tight-lipped about some things, like you mentioned on Discord, Stateless Cook, but also he's, uh, he's, <laughs> he's just wrapping lead shot in a, in a plastic, um, casing, basically, in order to make the, uh, the, the actual, um, the actual, uh, bullet itself, which is, uh, great the, the the case uh the um he's not really saying what the thing is printed out of i'm gonna assume it's pla plus um stateless cook there's a dude different one working on a 50 bolt action pistol is printing the ammo cartridge too yeah uh that is um suck boy tony he um i made a logo for that gun actually uh the the bolter 50 um i don't think he's using the logo that i made but uh, it's on Twitter. I made I made the logo for the Bolter 50 that he was gonna use. Um, Stateless Cook. Yes, that's the dude. Yeah, uh, he's cool. The project he's working on is is amazing, and I'm 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 kind of amazed that he decided to be like, okay, I'm just gonna make a 50 caliber pistol. Hold on, real quick. <laughs> he has a hard time getting it to cycle cleanly, but as he continues to iterate on the project, it just looks better and better. Um. Sorry, back to this letter. Uh, we strongly urge the federal government to act swiftly to ensure compliance with the export control regulations in the Undetectable Firearms Act to protect our national security and public safety interests. I might have already read that. Anyway, this is, um, oh boy, this is hilarious. First of all, the, the metal detectors still work because the ammunition's metal. And there's also metal components. Even in the Liberator, I think there's a metal, there are metal components. I think you have to use uh, metal pins. I could be wrong about that. That said, the... Like the Glock 17 that I'm going to print, you still need a metal parts kit for chunks of it. Everything but the actual frame, basically. You still need metal rails. You still need... There's... The thing is still metal. It's not like there's no metal. In, even, the, even the FGC-9, which is built um, in an entirely unregulated way. It doesn't use any... Uh, say this coke firing pin and a couple screws in the Liberator. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it still uses... Yeah. I mean, it's still metal. It shoots metal ammunition, 
there's metal inside of it in the as as you said the, the firing pin and the screws um even the fgc9 which is built out of completely unregulated components is still full of metal the actual barrel is still metal it's it's not that the whole thing is printed in plastic that's not the point the point is that the components that are printed are printed or can be printed are printed and the components that cannot be printed can be easily made at home. That's the point of these projects. It's not to print a plastic gun barrel. It's not, and, and that's not the goal. Ivan tried to do it, and he pretty much just said, you know what, it'd be easier to just ECM a piece of hydraulic tubing, which he did. So you can rifle a piece of hydraulic tubing and use it as the barrel in the FGC-9. That's, what, that's how you build the FGC-9. People have such a fundamental misunderstanding of this technology, and I kind of love that fact because the people who don't get the technology are the people who are going to be writing the laws on it, which means that there's going to be all kinds of loopholes of it, hopefully, especially if they hang everything on the, on the undetectability of these things because they're very detectable. <laughs> um, so, but everyone who's posting about this thing, uh, you know, as if this letter is a good thing, everyone who's posting about it is getting ratioed and it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, let's move on to a longer reason piece that I'm only going to read a piece of. I'm only going to read a little bit of stuff. This is posted on the 13th uh, today. Uh, this is written by Paul Detrick on Reason. The, uh, they, they laid out this page weird, and so I'm having a hard time finding the information. I usually can go right to Hospital technicians ignore copyright law to fight COVID-19. Dressed in his blue medical mask and scrubs, Justin Barber looks like a doctor on a break from treating COVID-19 patients. He's actually a biomedical technician, or BMET, someone who fixes medical devices. He's on staff at a Houston hospital that he asks that we keep anonymous. Barber's job has suddenly become dangerous, etc., etc., etc. Barber, who's been working as a BMET over a decade, often uses service manuals and repairing equipment, but he lacks a lot of essential documentation. So he turns to online forms and relies on his intuition. During the COVID-19 pandemic, BMETs have turned especially often to this decentralized information sharing network to repair essential hospital equipment, but they've been using it for years, trading information on Reddit, Facebook, and websites like MedWrench and DotMed. Medical device manufacturers have responded by imposing software locks, proprietary code, and requirements that users obtain special authorizations. They've also fought against DIY repair services in court. So biomedical technicians have had to think especially creatively because in a pandemic, one broken machine could be the difference between life and death. Kyle Weens, the CEO and founder of the third-party repair company iFix, it says medical device companies have adopted certain tactics pioneered by Apple. Quote, well, we'll, see, uh, we'll sell it to you, but we're not going to let you service it, he says. We want to be the ones who service it. Manufacturers frequently claim the information in manuals is their intellectual property, a result of broadly written copyright laws that date back to the 1990s. These were intended to protect the music and film industries from pirates, which were taking their work and sharing it first through physical uh, bootlegs and then online. But in the 2000s, software began to, uh, began to get integrated into phones, household items, cars, farming equipment, and medical devices, too. Manufacturers claim that copyright laws established that they were the only ones the law permits to repair consumer devices. BMETs around the world began to rely on Frank's, uh, Frank, frankshospitalworkshop.com. That's a very long URL. A website started by a technician in Tanzania named Frank. Frank who kept his last name private, was having trouble servicing medical devices that he'd been donated, that had been donated to hospitals in Africa, since he lacked the proprietary keys to make them usable. He figured other people might be in the same position, so he started a website where he posted manuals and wrote about how the equipment worked. 
Uh, the manufacturers started sending Frank takedown requests. Now, when businesses forbid certain downloads of manuals, his site is limited to featuring the company's names. A right to repair movement has been fighting to change federal copyright law or to pass state level laws that let people fix their own devices. But medical device companies fought back with letters to lawmakers saying right to repair laws could endanger the lives of patients if devices were fixed improperly by untrained personnel. And that's all I'm going to read from that story. You kind of get the idea. Uh, it goes on to talk about uh, some of the organizations that are to blame for these uh, anti-consumer, anti-patient, anti-healthcare uh, worker uh, policies that they push. They, um, these people who use these copyright laws and things to hold a monopoly on the repair of devices, um, uh, they're bad people. <laughs> Like, ethically, there's, the right to repair is an ethical question, and the ability to repair a thing that you ostensibly own is part and parcel to owning the thing. The, the ability to modify a thing that you own is part and parcel to owning the thing. Now, they can say that if you choose to repair this yourself, we're not gonna, we're, it voids your warranty, because we're not going to provide a warranty for repairs that you did which is absolutely fine and reasonable. I wouldn't want to do that either if I were making these machines. The right to repair movement is being demonized as, as dangerous and things of this nature. And if you know anything about the DIY community, you know that these people are very, very intelligent and they know what the fuck they're talking about. There are people who are either uh, uh, trained and, and licensed, you know, electronics engineers and things of this nature, or people who have just learned it over time. That's the thing that nobody wants to talk about, is that knowledge has been democratized to the point that you could be an electrical engineer just based on building and reading and doing things yourself in your own time in a number of years. You could, you could be just as qualified as any electrical engineer. That's what the internet has allowed for. And that's what websites like the ones that are talked about here, that sort of, uh, they democratize the knowledge to fix these items. It's important, and it's a good thing for humanity generally. And uh, fuck politicians for allowing these companies to get in the way of that. It all, it's all part and parcel to the idea that you're licensing everything you own now. You don't actually own it, which is a problem. And it's going to be a problem in the future. Another reason story, and this is a point that I've been making uh, on Twitter and stuff for a little bit, we're getting into uh, some actual coronavirus talk, which we'll get out of and then go back into here in a minute. But I've been talking about the idea that when you depend on the bean counters to make decisions for everyone, you're depending upon a group of people who do not, by definition, they do not actually count the human cost of the decisions they want to make. They have a goal. Let's say in this case, the goal is flattening the curve of infection. With, I hate that phrase, by the way, but, but flattening the curve of infection rates of this virus. That's the goal. And so they look at what do we do in order to reach that goal? Well, we have to send people home from work, keep people at home, keep people inside, keep people from congregating in different places, things of this nature, which all makes perfect sense if all you're thinking about is the goal. The problem is that uh, stateless coke flattening the curve drink. I know, I know, I fucking hate it. I hate it so much. I hate that phrase. It's been, it's, it's been just parroted and parroted and parroted to the point that it's meaningless. The same is true for social distancing. Ugh. It, feels like, it feels like puke in my mouth, these phrases that have been just absolutely run into the ground. 
Um, yeah, they, 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 their goal, but in, in reaching this goal of, of doing the thing to the graph, they, <laughs> they don't think about the actual human cost of doing so. I was talking on Twitter not long ago about suicide rates and how they track with unemployment. And these are numbers that we have from, there, there are a few studies from the 2008 financial crisis and from the dot-com bubble bursting um, that actually can pin suicide rates to unemployment in a relatively predictable way. And when you, when, when that sort of aspect comes into play, you start to realize that, oh, these, ex these experts, these bean counters, aren't actually thinking about the consequences of their actions beyond reaching their goal of doing the thing to the graph. That is a problem because we have hit record unemployment numbers. And this is record unemployment numbers in the official numbers. And it's also record unemployment numbers for the shadow stat statistics. The, 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 the unemployment numbers are terrifying right now. Based on these numbers and based on the most recent changes to the models for coronavirus deaths, it's very possible that if the link between unemployment and suicide maintains itself as, you know, as it kind of was in 2001 and, or I'm sorry, 2000 and in uh, 2008, if that maintains itself, it's very possible that we could lose more people to suicide due to economic uncertainty than to the actual virus itself. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it is mathematically possible based on the numbers we have. And as they continue to adjust down the, the death toll for COVID-19, it becomes more and more likely that this will happen. So these are things that nobody's thinking about. People think that the concern about the economy is based on the idea of like, well, you just want the rich people to stay rich in the stocks and the blah, blah, blah. And that's not the concern. The concern is that when you shut down an entire economy, you take food off of people's tables. You introduce a level of uncertainty that human beings do not handle well. And in doing so, you increase the risk. And I'm only talking about the suicide. I'm not just, I'm not mentioning yet the um, mental health effects of being inside and being isolated for, for days at a time. I'm not talking about the um, and, and of that economic uncertainty. I'm not talking about the uh, impact on physical health of closing the parks, closing the gyms, not allowing people to congregate outside, not allowing people to even go outside in some states. People are getting stopped on the street and questioned by cops because they're outside or they've got Karens yelling at them. The physical health effects we haven't even talked about. Uh, stateless Cook, so pissed I can't go to the gym right now. Well, it, it would help. I mean, there is a link between, uh, between, between uh, reducing depression and exercise. Those links do exist. But it's like all the methods that people use to keep themselves sane have been taken away. The cost in human lives, the cost in mental health, the cost in physical health. These things aren't being counted by these experts. All they care about is doing the thing to the graph. Uh, Stateless Cook, dude, tell me about it. Dealt with chronic depression for like 20 years. Exercise helps me a ton. Absolutely it does. Absolutely. Those, that link exists. There is no denying it. And the same is true for like gardening. But in certain states, you can't buy seeds. The same is true for uh, taking a walk around the park. 
But the parks are closed. All the methods that people use to maintain their sanity have been taken from them. So yeah, as they continue to adjust the model down, I think we're going to see that the harm caused by organizations like the WHO, the CDC, who both lied about masks, the WHO was working for China throughout this whole thing anyway, the CCP, who lied about it at the very beginning, who knew about this as early as November and told no one, covered it up, arrested doctors and, and disappeared doctors who tried to tell the world about what was happening, the federal government, the FDA, who blocked the distribution of masks and the creation of tests for months, weeks, if not months, they blocked these things, the FDA did. These organizations that have handled this with a level of, of, of negligent irresponsibility that I think has not been seen in a situation like this, they will be responsible for more death and destruction than this virus ever would have. I think there's a case to be made that when this all shakes out, that will be what we should learn from this. And nobody will talk about it. Ace, I can't imagine how hard it's going to be for people. You'll definitely see depression on the rise. Even more than it already is. The FDA has blood on its hands. It absolutely does. And I'm not saying that the virus isn't a problem. I'm not saying it's just the flu or whatever. I don't, I'm not making any statement about that whatsoever. Just in, in accepting that it is a virus that is, that is communicable and kills people. In accepting that, saying nothing about the numbers themselves. I think by the time this thing is done, those organizations and more like it, like them, will be responsible for more death and destruction than the actual virus itself. This is a case in which the cure is worse than the disease. That's my suspicion. And I think the numbers will bear that out, and nobody will talk about it. Nobody will talk about it. It's not even to mention the actual cost and lost freedom. Freedom is worth something. We don't know what, but it's worth something. <sighs> so I, I think I just kind of covered this article, actually. Um, these are the points that I've been making for for a while now, about a week and a half now, since I started looking at some of this data. Um, uh, maybe a little longer than that. But let's go ahead and go to this article, because Jacob Sillam is a great writer, and I want to I reference this. From the article, the false debate about reopening the economy is, the one, is, one, is one that ignores the enormous human costs of sweeping COVID-19 control measures. John Alsop, who writes the Columbia Journalism Review's Daily News... I'm sorry, I have hiccups. Daily Newsletter argues that the conversation about when and how to relax COVID-19 lockdowns is a, quote, false debate that misleadingly pits live against livelihoods. In reality, Alsop says, there is no choice to be made between public health and a healthy economy because public health is an essential prerequisite to of a healthy economy. Well, that's true at some level. Broad business closure and stay-at-home orders nevertheless entail trade-offs that cannot be wished away by such anodyne assurances. Those trade-offs are, are a recurring theme of the recent roundtable in New York Times Magazine that Alsop himself mentions. The title of the forum is telling. Quote, restarting America means people will die, so when do we do it? The five panelists, especially Princeton bioethicist uh, Peter Singer, repeatedly call attention to the moral implications of reducing COVID-19 transmission by shutting down large sectors of the economy. Singer forthrightly questions, quote, the assumption that we have to do everything to reduce the number of deaths. That assumption is manifestly wrong, as reflected in the decisions that government agencies make when they assess the cost-effectiveness of health and safety regulations, decisions that routinely take into account not just the deaths that might be prevented, but the resources expended to do so. Those assessments assign a large value to preventable deaths, but the value is not and cannot be infinite. Quote, at some point, Singer says, we are willing to trade off uh, loss of life against loss of quality of life. 
No government puts every dollar it spends into saving lives. And uh, they actually put most of it into killing people. Um, <clears throat> and we can't really keep everything locked down until there won't be any more deaths. So I think that's something that needs to come into this discussion. How do we assess the overall cost of everybody in terms of loss of quality of life and loss of well-being, as, wellness, uh, as well as the fact that lives are being Singer is equally frank in discussing the weight that should be assigned to COVID-19 deaths, whether they are prevented by current control measures or allowed by loosening those restrictions. Quote, this is killing mostly older people. I think that's really relevant. I think we want to take into account the number of life years lost, not just the number of lives lost. I don't like talking like this, but whatever. Go off, Singer. The average age of death from COVID in Italy is 79 and a half. So you have to ask the question, how many years of life were lost, especially when you consider that uh, many of the people who have died had underlying medical conditions. The economist Paul Fritters, I'm going to assume that's how it's pronounced, roughly estimates that Italians lost perhaps an average of three years of life. That's very different from a younger person losing 40 years of life or, or 60 years of life. Similarly, the British epidemiologist Neil Ferguson has estimated that, quote, as much as half uh, to two-thirds of the people who will die from COVID-19 in the UK would have died anyhow by the end of the year because deaths from the disease are concentrated among people who are old and have serious pre-existing medical conditions. Another participant in the New York Times forum, Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, reinforces Singh's point, quote, I'm a big believer in using life years saved rather than just the number of deaths avoided as the goal, he says, noting that the allocation of scarce medical resources such as ventilators and organs routinely takes that factor into account. <sighs> let's, uh, let's scroll down a little bit. The economic cost, Singer notes, goes far beyond the immediate impact on people forcibly deprived of their livelihoods. Quote, we need to think about this in the context of well-being of the community as a whole. We're constantly impoverishing the economy, which means we're reducing the, the capacity in long term to provide exactly those things that people are take, talking about that we need. Better health care services, better social security arrangements to make sure people aren't in poverty. These victims in the future after the pandemic who will bear these costs. I'm sorry, there are victims in the future. After the pandemic, who will bear these costs? The economic costs we incur now will spill over in terms of loss of lives, loss of quality of life, and loss of well-being. I think that we're losing sight of the extent to which that's already happening, and we need to really consider that trade-off. The false debate, in other words, is not the discussion that, that considers the enormous human cost of suppressing economic activity. It's the discussion that pretends there is no such trade-off. So, yeah, this is, this is something that I've been concerned about and talking about for a little bit. The things that people... This is why... I want to make this point. Science and data and expertise are very useful things. Very useful things for helping us to understand the world around us and to interface with that world in a way that makes sense and that, 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 that treats the world as a thing that we can understand to a certain extent at least. Science, data, expertise. All these things are important for us as people. These are things that frankly, have allowed society to become more and more peaceful, the world to become more and more peaceful and wealthy, etc., etc., over time. That said, these people, these bean counters, the experts, do not measure the cost, the human cost, of the things they think are a good idea. They don't for two reasons. First, they can't because they are either unaware or they have tunnel vision or it's not their job. Their job is to figure out how to do the thing to the graph. That's the extent of it. They're not going to think about, well, how many people do we lose to suicide if we do this? That, does, that never factors into the equation. Why? Because they are bean counters. They count beans. That's what they do. They do not think about the human cost. 
this is something that comes out of sort of uh, if you if you listen to Dan Carlin talk about military science, talk about the bean counters of military science. It's the same situation. Well, how do we take this hill? Well, we throw bodies at it until we have the hill. Well, how many men are you going to kill doing that? Who gives a shit? That's not our concern. So we should take we should take all these things with a grain of salt and and don't hand the world over to a a a, a, a platonic set of philosopher kings. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Let's look at some more people who don't understand what the fuck is going on in the world. This is a tweet thread from Will Reinhardt on, uh, on Twitter uh, talking about the New York Times. Recent reporting from the New York Times suggested that Co- uh, Covidian's buyout of Newport was a killer acquisition. So I did some digging on, and last Friday, uh, CGOUSU published my findings. Here's a thread of what wasn't in the New York Times. To set the stage... Newport Medical contracted with HHS to supply 10,000 ventilator units in 2010 at $3,000 per unit. But after they were acquired by COVID and the company pulled back from the deal to produce ventilators. One line in the New York Times connected the dots. Government officials and executives at rival ventilator companies said they suspected that Covidian had acquired New- uh, Newport to prevent them from building a cheaper product that would undermine Covidian's profits. I went looking for the Newport HHS contract, which isn't available, and found the original HHS request proposals. Uh, Those who claimed the deal was a killer acquisition should take a look at it, because it complicates the story. First off, the original solicitation in 2018, which was never awarded, had the price of ventilators at $2,000 fully kitted, and anticipated, quote, multiple contracts with incremental and performance-based funding, and yet only Newport agreed to the $3,000 per unit. Second, and far more important, these ventilators weren't originally intended to be held within the strategic reserve. Rather, they were to be a guaranteed stream of ventilators when demand was high. Suppliers had concerns that the, with the contract design uh, in, 20, in 2009, and the agency officially responded, quote, it is highly unlikely that the government will not need ventilators. Still, HHS made no promises to follow up the contract with a purchase order for 10,000 units. Moreover, HHS made clear that, quote, materials and the storage of parts is the responsibility of the manufacturer. In other words, the original deal was a call option, where the buyer has the option to purchase a product at a certain time for a certain price. So one big reason that this HHS ventilator project was innovative was because it had used a unique medical, uh, I'm sorry, a unique financial instrument. To be fair, we don't know exactly what Newport said it would deliver to HHS, but the original deal would have been a ventilator call option. The big question is whether or not Newport could have produced a $3,000 ventilator that sufficed uh, its deal with the government. I think it's unlikely, since low-cost ventilators, ventilators arrive at their price by stripping features. For more on the coveted Newport deal, uh, two people have a great blog post. The most likely story is that the federal government tried to lowball a project, got a bite from Newport, and the project ultimately failed when COVID realized they were taking a loss on every single product. That's not a killer acquisition, that's poor planning. What's important about this thread, I think, is the fact that the New York Times story, let's uh, look at it. Uh, This is a New York Times story. The U.S. tried to build a new fleet of ventilators. The mission failed. Uh, Thirteen years ago, a group of U.S. public health officials came up with a plan to address what they regarded as one of the medical system's crucial vulnerabilities, a shortage of ventilators. Um, Blah, 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 blah. What they're saying, and this is this this story has been used uh, to build a narrative that it was, um, I believe I can actually say, quote, unrestrained capitalism that's caused the ventilator shortage based on this buyout. The problem is that that ignores what Will Reinhardt was able to find, which is the actual 
not the contract itself, but some of the uh, the uh, um, proposals that were made that outline what the contract likely said. And it was a bad fucking deal and nobody wanted to be any part of it. Especially once Covenant bought this other company who had taken part in this contract and said, no, this is, no, what? This is ridiculous. $3,000 fully kitted ventilators? No, we're going to lose money. 10,000 of them and we have to store them? No. Eat shit. With no guarantee they're ever going to be bought? So I just wanted to bring that up because, no, it wasn't unrestrained capitalism that caused the ventilator shortage. It was the government lowballing a fucking contract. This is what I'm talking about when I say that the FDA, the federal government, these states, the, the WHO, the CDC, all of these people are responsible for this negligence. That's what I'm saying. This is what I mean. It's shit like this that's gone on behind the scenes for years that has set this up. And I'm not saying it was on purpose when I say set this up. I mean, this you could not have a more perfect set of organizations to fuck this up if you wrote it in a novelization. Like you, this is, this is their fault. This is their fucking fault. The FDA, HHS, the WHO, the CDC, the CCP, it wasn't capitalism. It's not the people who want to go out for a walk, Karen. It was their fault. Ace in the chat. Imagine how much better the world would be right now if more people had 3D printers and there was no IP. That's another thing. That's another thing. The IP system. The shortage of masks. There was a, there was a 3D printable design for a mask that, uh, that came out. And um, it actually got quashed because uh, 3M said it violated their patents. Meanwhile, the FDA had 3M keeping millions of masks in storage because they were not allowed to distribute them onto the market. No idea. FDA regulation. This whole system was set up to cause this and mean on purpose. This is the stupidity of bureaucracy writ large. And as soon as it's hammered by an actual problem, a real crisis, it all comes into view. Uh, stateless quote, the FDA needed to inspect the masks and couldn't be bothered. That's why they're still in storage. Yeah, that, um, that actually tracks. That, that makes perfect sense. I hadn't looked into it. I just knew that it was an FDA regulatory issue that they were still in storage. I hadn't looked into why that exactly was, but that tracks perfectly. That they needed to go in and do their inspection. And here's what's ridiculous about that. A lot of those masks that aren't designed, I'm sorry, a lot of those masks that aren't going to be distributed for medical purposes just get sent to, like, auto body places. And they get sold as, like, spray painting masks and things like that. And it's the exact same mask that meets the exact same spec. This is what I'm talking about. Man. This, 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 all of this bureaucracy and regulation, as soon as it, as soon as it runs into a crisis, this is what happens. Stateless Cook, slightly different specs, I believe, but close enough to not really. It's, it's, they're, they're largely the same because they're built on the same, on the same tooling. They just don't inspect them the same. That's they 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 have looser specifications for how they would pass an inspection, but they don't have to. So they don't have to meet the FDA's actual guidance for certain applications. Like I don't think you actually have to have the FDA test a woodworking mask. But that's like like the things that my uh, the masks that my dad was on a recent episode. I was talking to him about this. The masks that he gets for industrial applications are not like FDA tested. Stateless Cook said correct. Yeah. They're, they're built on the same tooling and on the same lines, the same, uh, in the same factories, basically, but they're not, 
tested in the same ways they, they because you don't need to and it's it's a it's <laughs> they're the exact same product i just so kamala harris is going to be joe biden's vice president that's interesting right um this is from abc news vp talk could intensify with harris fundraising moves california senator kamala harris has made two notable fundraising moves wednesday that are sure to fuel speculation about her prospects to be joe biden's running mate on the democratic presidential ticket harris who dropped out of the White House race in December, set up a joint fundraising operation with the Democratic National Committee, an arrangement that is typically reserved for nominees trying to attract large donations from the party's biggest boosters. Hours later, she made a surprise appearance on a virtual fundraiser, including Biden, uh, I'm sorry, introducing Biden to donors. Harris, 55, will host her own virtual fundraiser Thursday. The deal allows her contributors to give a maximum of $357,800, with $2,800 going to retire uh, Harris's presidential campaign debts and the rest going to the National Party. The senator and the DNC filed paperwork for the arrangement Wednesday with the Federal Election Commission in the first joint fundraising agreement of its kind for Democrats this election cycle. Biden and the, and the party chairman Tom Perez, Tom Perez the coward, had been hesitant to enter into such an arrangement while Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was still actively campaigning against Biden. But Sanders suspended his campaign Wednesday, making Biden the presumptive nominee. Party officials did not say whether they have asked other former candidates for a similar fundraising arrangement, but that they become moot now that Biden is no, uh, now that Biden no longer must navigate Sanders' rival. Regardless, it's a testament to Harris's good standing among some of the party's top donors. Um, so this is uh, stateless cook said to the broadcast crasher, just me. Um, here, you might just want to reload. Um. Ace says, my biggest fear is Kamala is VP. Stateless Cook, you don't think it, uh, you think it won't be Abrams? I, I think it could be Abrams. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to say for sure. I know I started by saying it for sure, but that was more of like, a, like an introduction. I'm, I'm hesitant to say for sure that Kamala Harris is going to be Biden's VP. I think Abrams is certainly an opportunity. I, I think Harris... It would be interesting because she attacked him so hard through the uh, through the actual debates. But Harris attracts a certain kind of Democrat. And Harris could theoretically peel Republican. This is something that I was saying about Harris early on. A law and order Democrat likes like uh, Kamala Harris has an opportunity to peel Republicans away from Trump. Some of the some of the Republicans that were. Just, just not quite never Trumpers, but they don't really like him. A law and order Democrat could peel people away. I, I've always thought Harris was a good move for the Democratic National Committee to make. Um, I, I, I personally think she's a pig uh, and a terrible person and evil. But I, I, I mean, when I say e I don't generally use evil to describe people. I think Harris is legitimately evil. Um, I mean, she would. She's a good pick. She's a really good pick. And on top of that, she's a black woman. And, and Biden said that he would pick a woman. Like, this is, works. It just works. Harris just works. It feels, it, it's a very clean pick to go with, with Harris. Because, and here's the thing too. What she picks up as a law and order Democrat, she loses with the black population, with black voters generally. They tend not to like law and order Democrats. But Joe Biden, I mean, I mean black voters love Joe Biden. Doubt they're likely to jump ship from Joe Biden as a population, as a voting cohort. I doubt they're likely to jump ship from Joe Biden just because Harris is the VP pick, especially when you have at the actual, uh, at the actual 
uh, oh, what's the word? I've lost the word. At the actual convention, when you have Obama raising one of Biden hand, Biden's hands and Kamala Harris raising the other. Like, this is, I mean, I don't, I don't think the black voting population is, is really a concern with Biden running. She's absolutely evil. She laughed about smoking weed after locking up people for the exact same thing. That's depraved. Yeah, I agree. I agree. She's, she is a, she's, yeah, evil. Speaking of Joe Biden, he's got a new accuser. And I want to go, there's this Business Insider piece that, that just runs down all of the people who have accused Joe Biden of acting inappropriately toward women. And I just want to run through this list real quick, because I find it hilarious the fact that nobody's talking about this. COVID is definitely being used as a smokescreen for this. And in the stories that have talked about it, they talk about one of them, and they say there's no evidence that there are any other accusations. And here's a whole list. Um, some of these are, are, are relatively soft. Like, they're not, they're not, they're, I mean, they're, they're creepy, but Joe Biden's creepy. They're not, like, sexual assault, right? Um, with the exception of a couple of them. Um, but let's run through this list. Allie Cole, a former Democratic staffer, told the Washington Post that when she met Biden in 2008, he complimented her smile, squeezed her shoulders, and held her for a beat too long, in quotes. Sophie uh, Karasik was photographed holding hands and touching foreheads with Biden at the 2016 Academy Awards. While many saw the moment as powerful, Karasik said she felt Biden had violated her personal space. Amy Stokes Lapos said Biden, quote, put his hands right behind my head and pulled me close. And I thought, quote, he's going to kiss me during a 2009 event. Catherine Caruso told the New York Times that after she shared her story of sexual assault at a University of Nevada event in 2016, Biden hugged her, quote, just a bit too long and put his hand on her thigh. <laughs> God. DJ Hill told the Times that at a 2012 fundraising event in Minneapolis, Biden rested his hand on her shoulder and began moving it down her back. Hill said the encounter made her, quote, very uncomfortable. Alexandra Tara Reed, this is the person who we've been uh, talking about more recently, the person with the strongest accusation, who worked at Biden's Senate office in 1993, told the union that Biden, quote, put his hand on my shoulder and ran his finger up my neck. She also alleges that she went on to serve drinks at an event because Biden liked her legs. Um, she also said to the union that when she refused to serve the drinks, her work responsibilities were reduced. Reed alleges that she told Senate staffers about what happened and Biden's office found out. Two months later, she left her job. Reed said that she was the way she uh, was treated made her feel like a piece of ornamental furniture. Um, it's pretty set over there, she said, and when it's, if it's too bright, you throw it away. She, um, she also makes allegations of legitimate sexual assault, and I don't know why it's not in this story. Val Conner Yunt, a former, actually, you know what? I know why it's not the story. Because I don't have JavaScript on. There's no date on this story. But I think this story's from 2019. Um, that's why. Because the Tara Reid story came out, uh, her full story, where she actually claims to have been sexually assaulted, uh, came out more recently than that. Uh, Catherine Caruso told the New York Times that she shared her story of sexual assault. I'm sorry, I already read that one. Val, uh, Val Conner Yunt, a former White House intern, told the Post, and when she met Biden in 2013, he, quote, put his hand on the back of my head and pressed his forehead to my forehead. Courtney uh, also said Biden called her a pretty girl. In May 2019, Biden told 10-year-old girl, quote, I bet you're as bright as you are, good looking. The girl's teacher and mother defended Biden, but progressive critics argued the comments were further evidence of the candidate's pernicious, if unintentional, sexism. In June 2019, Biden told the brothers of a 13-year-old girl to, quote, keep the guys away from her. Oh, God, shut up. Shut the fuck up, Joe Biden. 
This guy has a podcast now. He's making a podcast. They put him, they decided he needs to be in front of a mic for longer. This is a story that comes from the Discord. This was provided to us by Ace in the Discord. Red and Blue America agree that now is the time to violate the Constitution. Countries are taking extraordinary measures to slow the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of these measures limit individual freedom and they also violate rights guaranteed by national constitutions. Italy's complete lockdown enforced by criminal penalties probably violates its constitution. Norwegian lawmakers have proposed an emergency law that temporarily gives the government unprecedented power to override the constitution and national laws that thwart the virus. Meanwhile, without consulting the Israeli parliament, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu enacted emergency regulations allowing for stunning surveillance power to combat the virus. Never one to waste a good crisis, Hungary's Viktor Orban will likely be able to rule by decree for the foreseeable future. The United States now faces the same dilemma. To what extent should the Constitution be violated, I'm sorry, to fight the coronavirus? Lockdowns, especially ones that apply to people who haven't tested positive for the virus, are constitutionally questionable. The threat by the leaders of Newark, New Jersey, to prosecute residents who spread false information about the virus, if carried out, could violate the First Amendment. Would violate the First Amendment. Um, I'm saying that. They say could. They're wrong. It, it would. Some people in California have challenged the city of San Jose's authority to force a gun shop to close, citing their right to arm themselves. Perhaps most alarming, the United States Department of Justice has, quote, quietly asked Congress for the ability to ask chief judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. To assess how Americans weigh the trade-off between preserving civil liberties and halting the spread of coronavirus, we conducted a survey last week. Just as state and local governments are beginning to implement their most restrictive policies yet, the survey reveals a remarkable willingness to tolerate civil rights violations in order to confront the pandemic, regardless of party affiliation. Now, Ace also shared, uh, and he says, this article made me so mad. Uh, yeah, it, it, it makes me angry, too. Stateless Cook said uh, of, of the earlier conversation, I'm sorry, I missed this. He does need to be in front of a mic more because he's entirely insane and hilarious. Biden, that is. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I just think it's like, what campaign manager thinks, yes, this man who's clearly suffering, uh, maybe possibly from dementia, uh, needs to be sitting in front of a mic more. Um, I, I, I mean, that's, this is elder abuse at this point. I've said it before. I do think it's hilarious, though. Um, and this is going to, it's going to be a knockdown drag out. Uh, uh, Trump is already running Trump's campaign, not even a pack. Trump's campaign is already running commercials talking about uh, uh, Joe Biden's cognitive uh, decline. Um, they, 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 they ended one of their commercials with, at least Bernie Sanders can remember his policies. <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm sorry, back to the story uh, from the Atlantic. This part of the story was also reposted by Scott Horton uh, to, um, to the Libertarian Institute. Quote, we presented a nationally representative sample of 3,000 U.S. residents with eight possible policy responses to the outbreak, all of which may be unconstitutional, including forced quarantine in a government facility, criminal penalties for spreading misinformation, bans against certain people entering the country, and conscription of healthcare workers. We also asked our sample to imagine that public health officials had reviewed the policies and estimated that each would likely have some number, save some number of lives, hypothetical figures that we provided. A majority of respondents supported all eight of these policies, most by considerable margins. The proposals with the lowest support were seizing businesses and banning all citizens and non-citizens out on the country from entering, but these policies still had 58 and 63% support respectively. The proposals with the highest numbers of support were banning non-citizens from entering the country and conscripting healthcare professionals to work despite risks to their own health. Both policies burden a defined mi minority of the population, and so it's not surprising that large majorities support them. But criminalizing speech based on its content, an idea that is antithetical to modern American constitutionalism, was also very popular. About 70% of respondents supported restricting people's ability to say things that may qualify as misinformation. 
Likewise, 77% of respondents supporting su support suspending all religious activities and gatherings, thereby restricting religious freedom. And even when we explicitly told half of our sample that the policies may violate the Constitution, the majority supported all eight of them, even the speech restrictions. All you have to do to turn everyone into a fascist is scare them. Seems pretty simple. Uh, Scott Adams. Scott Adams has been talking about how lovers of freedom are sociopaths. Or he said, I believe he said, it's hard to tell the difference between people who value freedom and sociopaths. Stateless Cook. Fuck Adams. Yeah, I know. Um, this is a dude who has made some interesting sort of cultural analyses. Um, Stateless Cook. God, I want to launch that man into the sun. Fucking same. Um, this is a man who has made some interesting cultural analyses in, in a post-Trump age, talking about how, you know, the nation's watching two different movies and blah, blah, blah. Interesting stuff. Good stuff from a socio-political perspective. But then he comes out and he starts talking about how people who are against these tyrannical uh, 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 policies are sociopathic. And it blew me away. I, in fact... I, I need to find the tweet. I'm going to be quiet for a moment so I can edit it out. He said, it's getting harder to distinguish freedom lovers from sociopaths. And, and the point that I made is this. It, it, it's not the people who are carrying water for totalitarians um, who are going to watch for and point out totalitarianism. They won't do it because they're afraid. They're behaving like you are, Mr. Adams. There's always going to be a crisis to be taken advantage of. We see it as a, a kind of responsibility to try and keep government afraid to take too much power. It's why we talk about 3D printing guns so much. It's why we talk about the Boogaloo so much. It's why we talk about all these things, is to make it very clear to the powers that be that people will die if you try to take too much power. Who dies? We don't know. Could be us. Could be you. But people will die. It will not be bloodless if you try to take too much power. That is the point. That is why we speak the way we speak. Do the things we do. Post the things we post. We want to keep government afraid to take too much power. We want to try anyway. Whether or not it works is another issue entirely, but that's the ideal. Even if we are wrong in this case, even if the only way to help people is to build a totalitarian state, you need us. You need us. Go draw more cartoons, dude. It's time to stop. You, you've wrung everything that you possibly can out of your sociocultural awareness, and now you're out of your depth. Man, this has been over an hour. I want to touch on a topic that I'm actually going to talk about next time. But before I do that... Credits will do fun. It's time for Who Do You Trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust Superior, executive producers Xerxy and Saw 77 I trust executive producer Childerberg and producers Max Ogburn, Absurdist Fool, and Whoa Dude. All of you are uh, over there on the subscribe star making it happen. Um, as I've said every, uh, every show, I know times are hard. If somebody needs to drop off or reduce the amount that they're, that they're giving, it's absolutely, absolutely should be your priority to make sure that you are and not me. <laughs> so, you do whatever you guys have to do. If you do feel like supporting the show, you, but you can't or won't do it financially, that's absolutely fine. Tell a friend, download the episodes, or, uh, or you know, just join us over on the Discord. You know, do, 
do whatever you got to do. Join the community. Um, there are many, many ways to help this show be better and, and be, um, to help the show spread, be more listened to, I suppose. Uh, there are many ways that you can do and, and any little thing helps. So for those of you who are donating, I want to thank you so much for still being there. You've been there for, um, a very long time approaching, man, I need to go back and look. I think Max Ogburn might've been with us for like almost a year at this point. I need to go back and look. It might be his producerversary. Um, and, uh, or, or his producerversary might be coming up or may have just passed. I don't even know anymore, but I want to thank all of those people so very much. Let's, uh, let's run through them again. Superior executive producers, Xerxes and saw you 77 executive producer, Childerberg and producers, Max Ogburn, absurdist fool. And whoa, dude, thank you all so much for being there each and every single week. Um, oh, like I said, there's a, there are other ways you can support if you want to. Uh, there's a merch store and uh, different ways to donate as well. You can find those on Alternative Internet Radio, uh, ARD.io, or on the Roguefile, roguefile.com. Thank you uh, so much, you guys, for being there every single week. You are wolves amongst ravens, gods amongst men, uh, diamonds in the rough, beautiful, bright spots of light in this dark and dingy place that we all call the Internet. I usually try and keep these shows at around an hour, not because I think I need to have an hour or something like that. I, I don't mind if they're shorter or slightly longer, but this topic is a little bit too big for me to start now. It would push us toward the two-hour mark, and I don't want to do that to you guys. Um, I know about an hour is 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 kind of what people want to listen to. Um, even though you may have more time now because of everything that's happening in the world, um, you shouldn't have to listen to me drone on for, for uh, too much longer than an hour. So I'm going to read this reason piece and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about what's, what's going to be talked about next week. Stateless cook, do it anyway. Um, I would love to, I actually think I want to do a little bit more reading on this too. I want to take advantage of that time to, to actually build out a real discussion about this topic because um, it's getting worse and this is, by the way, it's privacy concerns. It's getting worse. And uh, I, if I, I, I'd like to actually build out, maybe even do a whole goddamn episode because this is getting bad. The, the amount of, of privacy shit that's going on. And this is something that not a lot of people talk about, which is why I kind of want to do a deep dive on it. Uh, Everybody is a little bit concerned about, you know, tracking and things of this nature. But I don't think anybody really does deep dives on privacy, which is one of the reasons that I talk about it so much. And I want to build this out a little bit more. So as much as I love to just dive into these, I have like four stories about this that I'm going to push off, do a little bit more reading, and hopefully build out a really good show on the topic for you for next week or maybe the week after, depending on how things shake out. But let's go to this first reason story here, published on the 10th of this month. The surveillance state thrives during the pandemic. From cell phone tracking to drone eyes in the sky perused health records and GPS ankle bracelets, an epidemic of surveillance state measures is spreading across the world. It's all done in the name of battling the spread of COVID-19, of course, since every crisis is used to justify incursions into our liberty. But long after the virus has done its worst and moved on, we're likely to be stuck with these invasions of our privacy unless we push back hard. The rationales for surveillance are easy to understand, within certain limits. Public health authorities battling the pandemic want to know who is spreading the virus, which people may have been infected and the movements of those potentially carrying the bug. China, where the COVID-19 outbreak began, leveraged its already deeply intrusive system of social control to force people to install cell phone apps that assign them a code 
according to, allegedly, their perceived risk of spreading contagion. Permission to travel or enter public spaces depended on that code, even as the software also tracked their whereabouts and shared data on users' phones with the authorities. Democratic South Korea didn't go so far as China, but it still tracked people's cell phones and credit card usage. Officials also used surveillance cameras to monitor the movements of those suspected of being infected. By the way, there's another story that I have about how much of the data that's being collected from people in South Korea is being published. Um, emulating a Chinese tactic, Spanish authorities turned to aerial drones to detect unauthorized gatherings of people. Already a cringeworthy concept for those of us disinclined to ask permission to meet with friends. Loudspeakers on drones then ordered violators to return home. Here in the U.S., government officials joined with tech companies to paw through the location data that most of us share with cell phone apps. The idea is to determine if people are staying at home as ordered. If not, the information detects where we're clustering. Privacy rules have also been relaxed to allow easier sharing of patients' medical records with government health officials. This is something we read about on the last episode. Some government agencies are attaching GPS ankle monitors to COVID-19 patients who suspected of exposure lest they go for a walk in the country or pick up groceries from a curbside. In most cases, Big Brother-ish uh, tactics have been sold as temporary measures intended to battle very real danger from COVID-19 pandemic. The surveillance is intended to enforce social distancing and track carriers of the new coronavirus so that we can end the health crisis and return to normal. But can we take government officials at their word that they'll eventually abandon their new powers? Quote, Government demands for new high-tech surveillance powers are all too familiar, was Adam Schwartz, a senior staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Quote, this includes well-meaning proposals to use various forms of data about disease transmission among people. Even in the midst of a crisis, the public must carefully evaluate such government demands because surveillance invades privacy, deters free speech, and unfairly burdens vulnerable groups. And, Schwartz adds, new surveillance powers tend to stick around. The EFF attorney isn't alone in his concerns. Quote, I think the effects of COVID-19 will be more drastic than the effects of the terrorist attacks of 9-11, not only with respect to surveillance, but across many aspects of our society, wrote security expert Bruce Schneider. Sh uh, Schneier. I always pr I pronounce that. Right. This is the guy, by the way, the Bruce, Bruce Schneier. This is the guy whose blog post we read on the last episode that Xerxes shared. Um, really, really, really good blogger uh, and, and great things to say about security. And while many things that would never be acceptable during normal times are reasonable things to do right now, we need to make sure we can ratchet them back once the current pandemic is over. Yeah, right? That's Pollyanna. Our ability or lack thereof to, quote, ratchet them back is the key point here for surveillance powers. That's because, as Schwartz suggests, governments tend to expand their reach in response to crisis, but only to surrender part of that new authority as danger recedes. Quote, after each major crisis, the size of government, though smaller during the crisis, remained larger than it would have been had the, uh, though smaller than during the crisis, remained larger than it would have been had the pre-crisis rate of growth persisted through the interval occupied by the crisis, wrote economic historian Robert Higgs in his 1987 book, Crisis and Leviathan. Tellingly, he coined the term ratchet effect to describe the phenomenon. Ratcheting back extraordinary surveillance powers becomes even less likely if the crisis drags on, either because of circumstances or because it's convenient for those who like the power it conveys. Uh, I am going to stop there because I think you understand. By the way, that book uh, is an important one, Crisis and Leviathan. It's um, 1987, so it's, it's, it's before even the Patriot Act, which is probably the greatest example that we have of this kind of effect, at least in, 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 in uh, recent memory. Ace Higgs is badass. Yeah, I agree. Higgs is great. Um, so that's a, I'll just leave that as a preview of a show I want to do about privacy in this, in this light, because 
boy, it's horrifying some of the things that are happening. Apple and Google announcing that they're going to be releasing this new, uh, a new uh, contact tracing app. The contact tracing app is supposed to be uh, very privacy focused, but it's coming from Google. When's the last time Google did anything, anything to protect people's privacy without having some way to monetize it? I can't think of anything they've ever done. I, don't, I can't think of any effort they've actually ever put into protecting people's privacy that they couldn't somehow monetize the data they got from. I don't trust it. I don't trust them. And we'll talk about it more on the next episode. Stateless Cook, did they ever protect people's privacy? No. <laughs> no. I, in fact, they, they, actively, they actively don't want privacy. Um, yeah. It's especially with the Earn It Act and things of this nature that are coming up right, as well. Uh, that idiots are saying is a good idea because it's for the children. Ugh. We might talk about that on the next episode. So try to try to put all these pull all these threads together, uh, and 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 then I I do still want to do an entire episode about how you can solve this problem for yourself. State with cook. It's always for the children. It is. So we will talk about that on the next episode. This show has been long enough. You've listened to me drone on for uh, over an hour at this point. So um. Thank you so much for hanging out and, and listening to the show. Uh, we will be back again next week, and I will see you. Uh, I, will, I will see you next week. I, I, be, be well, people. Be well. Try to stay sane. It's really important that you try to stay sane because the, everything I said earlier about the human effects of the, the decisions that have been made, I, I truly believe and I'm concerned for not, not like just myself because I'm feeling the effects, but I'm concerned for the people that I know and care about and the people who I also know are feeling these effects, people who are being faced with tough times and tough choices in the midst of all this, even unrelated. Do your best to try and just stay sane. Find, find something to do uh, to take up your time. Um, I, 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 I know it's difficult, but it, it, it's not worth your health to to your mental health, you know, just to kind of sit and like, like follow and everything. I'm, I'm trying to distract myself from some of the situations that are going on. It's 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 having a real effect on me and I know I'm not the only one. So just be well, guys, um, be well. And I look forward to talking to you all next week. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week. A.I.R.A.D. dot I.O. slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, you can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files, you can find the network on Twitter at AltNet Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.